Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, despite a labor shortage in parts of the country, the federal government is pausing intake of skilled immigrant workers because they don't have the ability to process them. Just what kind of an impact is that going to have on the economy? And after a week of diplomacy fails between the U.S. and Russia, where does Canada stand in this process? And James Menzies, editor of Today's Trucking and truckernews.ca, will join us to explain trucking protests and the donations that drive them. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Truckers' uh, protests, uh, supply chain shortages, uh, a number of different things are having an adverse effect on our economy these days, including the fact that we can't get highly skilled immigrant workers in here fast enough to fill a number of vacancies that are around. And, uh, well, it's something that needs to be addressed right off the bat. And uh, to that end, of course, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce is right there to see what they can do about this. Uh, talking to us now about uh, the problems that are facing the economy right now, uh, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Leah Nord. Leah is the Senior Director of Workforce Strategies and Inclusive Growth with the uh, Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Leah, good morning. Good to have you back on the program today. Good morning, Bill. It's always a pleasure to be here. I'm here from a very chilly Ottawa this morning. <laughs> a little less chilly in Hamilton, London area these days, but we certainly had our shot of that too. Let's talk a little bit about this. I want to get into the truckers thing in a couple of seconds, Leah, but let's, mm-hmm. let's focus, if we could, uh, about an immigration system here. And we know that you know this is a country that's based on immigration. You know, the, the brightest and the best have come here from all over the world because they, they love Canada and they've made contributions and they've been huge contributors to the economy. We know there are vacancies in the workforce right now. Mm -hmm. We know there are opportunities here right now, uh, but we're told there's a huge backlog that's holding everybody up. What's happening here? Yeah, I have to be honest. Uh, This this story broke late Friday afternoon, and and the first word that comes to mind is is surprise, Bill. Yeah, Um, we uh, we didn't appreciate. We've we've had you know as the business community, actually, I will say, quite constructive uh, conversations with the ministers in the minister's office, talking about labor shortages, talking about numbers. You know, they've got a very robust uh, immigration levels number. How many they want to bring on? every year so to hear this happen was was a bit of a surprise i'll say off the bat we're, we're following up uh it's it's still breaking and and we're we're going to uh try and dig a little deeper here to be sure now the essence of this and, and we'll try to get some more details and as i say you're exploring this and yeah. we are as well uh because i know there have been some calls to say well you know because of the housing crisis and a few other things we should yeah. just halt immigration that's not what the government's saying at all uh they'd love to be able to process these people and bring them in here to try to uh, address some of these problems uh but i guess they've they've got such a backlog right now they basically hit the pause button and said wait a second we need time to catch up that's that's essentially the the, the gist of it isn't it yeah and and first of all i do want to clarify i mean i know i know there's there's been discussions around you know the immigration and the housing piece immigration isn't the only piece and there's data that's come out in the past couple of weeks looking at you know the numbers coming to ontario and it's not entirely driven by immigration not to say it's an issue and we do need a whole you know a whole uh, a, approach when it comes to to you know labor shortages housing this is you know issues for domestic as well Bill, but it is, it's really worrying to see, you know, the fact that the, you know, visa processing times are a perennial problem uh, for the department. There's some money that's going into that and a system that's coming, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later, but it is really disconcerting. It's disconcerting to see that number that it could take up to three years to process these skilled immigrants. And and I'd, I'll tell you, the timing couldn't be worse. On, on Friday, the U.S. government, they issued a 
a statement that's called actions to attract STEM talent and strengthen our economy and competitiveness. STEM being science, technology, engineering, and math, those, those traditionally dubbed, uh, you know, higher skilled professions. So if I'm an immigrant that has to work, wait three years to come to Canada, I, I know where I might start looking. And, and that's really disconcerting for us to be sure. Well, and I guess, yeah, what exacerbates the situation, because I had the same reaction you did when I saw this late last week, mm-hmm is, okay, the government has identified a problem. Uh, what, is, they, why, what are you doing about it? I mean, sh- let's face yeah. it, clearly they need more, more resources here to process yeah. an awful lot of these things. Uh, but they don't seem to have a plan for this. And uh, I don't know how many times, Leah, over the last, well, especially 12 months or so, as we so- thought a couple of times now we were going to start our economic recovery, and then bingo, we got another wave. This time it's Omicron. A lot of economists will say, whoa, didn't see that coming. And this is one of those situations where they did not anticipate that this was going to be a, a, an impediment to the economic mm-hmm. growth that they were predicting. We need people. We need skilled people. And we're not yeah. getting them in here enough. Yeah. And, you know, I, I you know, of course, COVID pandemic, it, it has, you know, brought issues you know, everywhere, right, including, you know, embassies and, you know, the ability to process, you know, biometrics and all of those things, Bill. But I think what what is a little bit or the most concerning to me out of this is there seems to be sort of this either or approach, either we process refugees or, you know, uh, temporary residents that are here or economic classes. We need solutions, as you say, that look to a both and right? We, we do yeah. need immigration in this country for a whole host of reasons, you know, diversity of our com- communities, labor shortages, um, you know, let's, let's look at our base, right? We've got, we've talked about this bill, record labor shortages across industries, right? And, and we do need highly skilled, we need all types of workers. Um, but we, um, we, <laughs> sorry, I lost my train of thought there. But you know, we need everybody in here it's not an either or it's a both and 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 we need this um as well that's what i was going to say it's not only the labor shortages now bill it's the retirements that are happening we don't have the you know the young coming up and through fertility rates that are going to offset that it's it's a reality here for for as you say economic growth we want to build houses we want to build infrastructure we want to build roads we want to recover we need a, a a labor force that's able to do that we want to compete globally in tech and you know innovation and vaccines and nurses you know we need it all bill we need it all well, and we've seen this even in Ontario, Lee, in the last little while. I mean, you know, there have been some huge strides made uh, in, in tech improvements here. I mean, we all know about, you know, what happened in KW, of course, with, with BlackBerry and RIM. Uh, but that's happening all over the place right now. Hamilton's involved in that. KW is. Uh, Toronto. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on, but they need expertise. And, and I guess part of the frustration here is there were warning signs about this. And you mentioned... Uh, you know, what's going on here with refugees and with skilled labor. And you can't conflate the two, but the two very much influence each other. I mean, this Canadian government made a huge contribution, and I'm glad they did, uh, to try to take in a number of Afghan refugees uh, after the turmoil that was going on there last September. They're not even going to come anywhere near the target that they wanted to because they can't process them. It sounds like a familiar theme here. Now it's starting to have a negative effect on the workplace. Uh, I'm, I'm waiting. I, I, I know... We've got some bright people up in Ottawa right now, Leah, but I mean, somebody at this point is going to say, wait a second, I think we need to, to employ more resources here to get this thing done. You can't just throw your hands up and say, okay, we got to hit the pause button because you can't pause a growing economy. It just, you can't do it that way because as you say, these people that want to come to Canada have chosen Canada 
I got to go someplace else if the door is going to be shut. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And and I'm just sort of smiling because maybe that's where the labor shortage, you know, there's there's an intersection of labor shortages as well within the department. But I mean, as part of a planning process, as you say, you've got to make sure you've got, you know, the resources to to be able to process, um, you know, any additional any additional people we might be taken as you say it doesn't have to be an either or it it should be a both and 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 right we should be welcoming but we need we need the ability not only to say we're going to do it but to, to take it through to implementation anyway it's it's out there now and here's hoping that the government is going to talk about this and get some resources done uh, i got a few minutes left i want to if we could pivot over to what's going on uh we're going to on the show later today talk specifically about this this truckers protest uh, and those that are against the idea of the mandated vaccine program, just to give our listeners an update, uh, it cuts both ways right now. The U.S. government's adopted a very similar policy. So, I mean, truckers have got a, a beef with both governments at this stage. And we'll talk about that. But I want to talk about the impact uh, that something like this is having on the economy. Uh, supply chain is probably a phrase not too many of us were using. It wasn't part of our, our jargon or our vocabulary uh, two years ago. It's very much part of it right now. Uh, we've already seen evidence of this, uh, Leah, of of you know, depleted shelves, someplace empty shelves. Uh, you know, you've tried to even order stuff online and people say, well, we just can't get it in time. I'm sorry. Uh, this is having a really, really bad effect on what's going on. And uh, and again, you don't always think government's going to be the one with all the solutions here, but they have to address this. Uh, again, absolutely. I mean, trucker shortages were issues before the pandemic, yeah. uh, even, you know, more so now through the pandemic, if we look at, again, retirements coming in, going out, I mean, the trucking industry has done a lot um, to try and bring in more to make it uh, a more amenable profession. Um, and, and, and there's work going on, um, Bill. To be clear, the Canadian Chamber uh, has been asking not for ending the vaccine mandate for truckers, not by any means, just extending it a little bit to allow them the time for those uh, who haven't yet been vaccinated to be able to be vaccinated. You know, there's a precedent around some essential workers. We feel that that truckers are essential workers. And again, not to, to eliminate the, the requirement, but just to allow some extra time and, and for it, you know, this to continue. Uh, you know, the numbers I'm hearing are around 25, 26,000 uh, who we could lose to the system. And, and as you say, that will be um, problematic um, to be sure. And, and, you know, we were just talking about, well, come on, government, step up. What's going to be the solution here? The solution's right in front of them, and you just articulated it. I mean, uh, your, your chamber, Canadian chamber, has been very vocal about this. So has the Trucking Association, and we've talked to them four or five times over the last few days. Uh, and first of all, they do not support the protest that's yes. going on there. Secondly, they're just saying that same, they're not asking for an exemption. They're saying, mm -hmm. can you just give us some time? Uh, which is not without precedent. Of course, they gave healthcare workers, long-term care facility workers, and others uh, a, a, a period of time, almost like a grace period to catch up and say, okay, get vaccinated. City workers in Ottawa, Hamilton, and other communities are under the same situation. You've got this date, and if you're not vaccinated by then, you could lose your job. Yet they came down to the trucking industry, and all of a sudden they gave very short notice and say, this is the date for compliance. Too bad, so sad if you don't make it. I, I think they've got to as you mentioned, uh, extend the same sort of leeway that they did to other industries and other, I think, essential services. And as we know, right from the, the first day of this pandemic, uh, trucking is an essential service. If we can't get goods to market, we're not going to eat. Exactly. And again, it's just it's just that extra 
time. Uh, to be clear, as you had said today, the Canadian Trucking Alliance has come out and said they don't support what's going on. That's a, a little bit different than the positions we've been taking. Um, but we're going to, you know, this has just started to take effect in the couple next couple of weeks. We're going to to really see how how this bears out. Um, and, and it is, it's going to be, you know, make problems that we already have even worse. Well, it's, and there's solutions out there. And and I understand that, you know, you can get overwhelmed in these situations because of what's going on, you know, the housing crisis, and we've talked about that, and, and the supply chain and, and the worker shortage. And there's a new report out, by the way, about that that is kind of an eye-opener too, because I know a lot of us seem to be under the impression that, well, it's because of all these government subsidy programs. These people are sitting back at home saying, well, I don't think I want to go back to work. I'll just keep doing this and as long as that money's available. Uh, and I'll give you a spoiler alert. An awful lot of those people are gone. I mean, they've gone, they've, they're not waiting to go back to work. They found other jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this, you know, these, especially in the, in the hospitality industry, uh, they got to start finding people to, to fill the vacancies and, and, you know, the government's got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. They can't just say, well, we've got to move on vaccinations. Of course they do. We want to see that. We want to see uh, as many people get vaccinated as possible. But you also have to look at some of these things that are impacting the economy right now. And I know the Canadian Chamber has been very vocal about that. Uh, we need the government to start listening and, and say, OK, let's let's adopt some policies here that are going to alleviate some of these problems. Absolutely. And, you know, again, with the labor shortage, there isn't a silver magic bullet answer, right? We did have just, you know, we were always uh, concerned about disincentives in the system, but that's not the only issue, as you just said, right? This is a multi-pronged answer and a multi-pronged approach. It's not easy. There's lots of players, but the federal government really does have a leadership role to play here. And it's key, again, to our economic um, growth bill. We can talk again about housing and building houses all we want, but we need the qualified labor supply to actually build those houses, to hammer the nails, to put in the insulation, to plan the housing, right? This is, this is labor shortages are, are going to be, you know, a, a key barrier to our growth and, and going to have to be addressed in, in several various ways. It's, it's difficult, but it's not impossible to be sure. We can't hope this thing away. I mean, we've got to develop some strategies here. We can't just say, boy, I hope the numbers go down. Hope we can start opening up again. And then and I, I don't get to draw you too much into the political realm here, but I mean, that seemed to be the, real, the reaction from an awful lot of the four government policies last week is that they didn't actually develop a plan. They just said, we're hoping by this date that the numbers are going to be down. There's got to be some solid strategy here. And not just from the Ford government, but from federal governments and other provincial governments too. Uh, yeah, Bill, I'll, I'll hope is not a, a strategy. That's for sure. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, I mentioned in my commentary, you know, I, I don't give us hope or hyperbole. Give us some solutions here. And and they can do this. But they've. Uh, I'm going to pull a phrase out that they used in the first couple of months of the pandemic that they all seem to have forgotten. We're all in this together. And mm-hmm. if you don't solve one problem, it's going to have a, a domino effect on a number of other problems, too. Uh, thank you uh, for, uh, for the work that you guys are doing at the Canadian Chamber uh, for being that voice right now and bringing these these issues up. Uh, and we've got a demand as a Canadian public right now. We've got to demand the government's listen and start reacting to these things too. Leah, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program uh, to get your perspective on things. Thanks so much for this today. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thank you. Have a good day. Take care. Leah Nord, who is the Senior Director of Workforce Strategies and Inclusive Growth for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. It's It's... It's obvious, people. I mean, you see it. I see it. I think some people in the government see it. Let's talk about possible solutions here. Don't just say, well, we can't do this now. Let's just hit the pause button. That's not good enough. 
That's like sticking your head in the sand and hoping the problem is going to go away. It won't. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Temperatures rising very quickly on the Ukraine situation um, with the Russian troops, of course, along the border. NATO is now responding. And, uh, well, first of all, the UK is withdrawing embassy staff from Ukraine. Uh, there seems to be a, a, an increase in troop movements over there. And uh, Canada's in here. Uh, we're not quite sure exactly how extensive the role is going to be for the Canadian government. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is pushing back against remarks made by the Russian ambassador to Canada, who scoffed at the threat of Western sanctions in response to uh, Russia's actions toward Ukraine. Uh, Prime Minister says sanctions do work, and they had an impact on Russia and its people when they were penalized following Moscow's incursion back into Crimea a few years ago. We know that the Russian people do not want to see uh, Ukraine invaded, uh, do not want to see deaths uh, in a conflict that should be avoided. That's why we're calling on Russia to de-escalate, calling uh, on diplomatic conversations, uh, but reminding everyone that we stand with the Ukrainian people. So uh, what role, if any, does Canada play in this situation? Uh, Foreign Affairs Minister, of course, has been over there having some discussions with uh, some of the heads of state, but uh, there seems to be a, a, a butting of heads between uh, President Biden and, of course, Vladimir Putin on this, and uh, Ukraine seems to be stuck in the middle. Uh, let's talk about Canada's role in this, and to do that, and uh, some other stuff going on in Ottawa, I'm pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, hope you had a great weekend. Uh, Laurie, thanks so much for the time today. Anytime, Bill. And yeah, weekend was good. Hope yours was too. Excellent. Excellent stuff here. It's still winter here in southern Ontario, but uh, we'll, we'll <laughs> we still got to do. Uh, I want to talk about Aaron O'Toole in a second because there's some weird things going on there uh, with the Tory caucus. But let's let's deal with the Ukraine situation because it's a very fluid uh, situation right now with uh, some of the U.S. rhetoric back and forth. Uh, Vladimir Putin seems to have drawn a line in the sand. I know that Joe Biden addressed this uh, with some of his comments last week and actually probably did more to, to cloud the situation than he did to clarify. But here's Canada on the periphery. Uh, you know, they, they have offered assistance. Uh, which was accepted by Ukraine. It was financial assistance. There's some talk about troop movements. There's some talk about weaponry being uh, sent over there. Where Where is Canada right now, and, and, and how committed are they to doing what they can here? Yeah, I'm, it's an interesting... You're, you're right, it's a very interesting question. Now, I I don't have any doubt that we are... Canada is committed. Um, we're standing with the Ukraine, However, um, we are, as you know, like we're a, we're a small power. We are part of a, a coalition. We're part of a, a, a kind of broader partnership that will take a stand here. I, I don't think that um, we're ever going to be in a position where we're, we're taking a leadership role. We are responding. We are responding with allies. I mean, as you said, you know, we've, we've given the Ukraine um, a loan in the last few days. We have, uh, Minister Jolie was, was there. Um, whether or not this, I think what any other further steps that Canada takes, you know, as the prime minister said, I think we'll wait and see what happens. Things are clearly escalating. And so I think, you know, at this point, I, I, you know, the prime minister saying he doesn't want to make any assumptions based on hypotheticals, but this morning, I mean, just before you and I started talking, I saw Boris Johnson on TV, um, you know, clearly things are, are escalating around this. There have been situations in the past when there have been potential conflicts like this, where one country will play kind of an intermediary role. And I'm wondering if that's maybe where Canada's trying to uh, place itself in this situation. I found it interesting late last week 
that uh, that the uh, the Russian foreign minister has actually extended an invitation to Minister Jolie to come and visit Moscow anytime. I think that was the phrase that he used uh, to discuss some of these issues. Now, I don't know if that's an open invitation to bring Canada into this or more of a backhanded slap at Christia Freeland, who the Russians don't mm. like uh, and wouldn't even allow into the country. But is, is there an opportunity here for Minister Jolie to step in here and, and play a more prominent role? Um. Possibly. Like, I mean, I, it seems to me that uh, the PMO has said that, or sorry, the minister has said that they're in receipt of, of the invitation and haven't responded yet. And so I'm not sure, like, personally, I don't know whether this is a bit too escalated at this point for Canada to be able to come in and play a role. I think all eyes are on, um, but on, you know, on the other hand, all eyes are really on Secretary Blinken, on Vladimir Putin, on the, you know, the US-Russia dynamic. And so, in that way, it could be possible for Canada to to kind of have a conversation because we're not so much, you know, all eyes aren't on us in the same way. That said, I I don't get um, much of a sense from what's been said so far that there is a there's going to be an uptake on that invitation anytime soon. Um, but I think one of the things that Canada can do as a soft power again is is possibly kind of have those conversations. But again, the more the two sides get really drilled down, and the more it's you know here are our bottom lines, and we're not going to move unless the U.S. gives written response that you know they accept our terms, kind of thing. That doesn't leave a lot of space for candidates or anybody to negotiate anything, right? Like if it starts to come down to the zero sum, each side is locked in. That and that's all public and that's all escalating. Then the opportunities for a window for you know somebody to go in and kind of smooth things over they become that becomes really difficult. And and you've pulled back the curtain on this, I think, about what's going on because I mean a lot of the reporting on this is well, it's Russia versus NATO, and and, and that's right, I guess uh, from a, a, a theoretical standpoint. Uh, but the United States is the big dog in NATO once again, and they're the ones that are calling the shots. I know the you know the UK and, and Canada and other uh, NATO countries have got a role in this as well. But it it just seems to be uh, Biden versus Putin here, and, and the comments and the rhetoric going back and forth, uh, which is only inflaming it. But and they're both entrenched in this, aren't they? Uh, I mean, one of the the demands, if I can use that term, that, that Putin has is he wants a guarantee that Ukraine will never be allowed in NATO. Uh, and and NATO is basically a, a saying we're not going to do that. I don't think, and based on past experience, I don't think NATO's in any hurry to bring Ukraine in anyway, but they don't want to be told that they can't. Well, that's it. And absolutely. Like, I, th I think if, if NATO is to mean anything, it can't give in to the demands of Russia over Ukraine. Like, there's just no way. And so that's why it's hard to see how this will be resolved, right? Because it, I think... Russia has now really put put its you know put itself on the line and said this is we need this or you know or else and they they're building up their troops on the border and mean, meanwhile you know we've we're looking at Biden and Secretary Blinken and I think yeah like the Biden's comments on last week I don't think are have done you know any any major damage or anything but I think it kind of invited people to to think okay well what is what's really in his head then what would a minor incursion look like and you know what what would have to happen there and so then it seemed to have this odd space between Biden and Blinken or would you know create create questions as to what was really going on in Biden's head when it comes to this and so then Blinken is trying to close that space and say no no like we we will meet but even something like that you know has forced the US to be even more clear and direct and you know non-negotiable about where their position is and so here we, yeah, here we are. But as you say, right, like NATO can't just say, oh yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> we'll do what you want. 
But but that that phrase that the president used that my, you know a minor incursion yeah that, I think that's what raised a lot of eyebrows. What do you mean minor incursion? What are you you're going to let them in ten miles across the border? You're going twenty miles across the border? Uh, are they going to you know take over part of of Ukraine, uh, which they'd love to do in situations like that? I, I think. I get the sense that certainly the NATO troops, and even for that matter, I guess President Biden, uh, they don't want a, a, a face-to-face conflict here. They don't want a military response to this by any way, shape, or form. But if they invade, if the Russians invade Ukraine, what choice do they have here? Do they let it happen and just simply say, okay, now we're going to crack down with economic sanctions? Well, that's it. What the heck is a minor incursion and how long is it going to be minor? Like that doesn't make to me. I'm just like, I don't know what he's talking about. That doesn't make any sense. And, you know, what are you doing with economic sanctions at that point? And I know there's a there's a huge debate over whether economic sanctions work and have worked in the past. But I just think, you know, if you're in the Ukraine, uh, you know, minor incursion, nah, what does that what does that look like? What would and, and what sort of response would you take? And then I think, you know, this that would be a totally escalating situation that then, you know, if, if you're not responding, then that just is going to keep getting worse. Like it's so, yeah, I, I don't know ultimately that that his comments are going to have any have any real effect on whatever the outcome is going to be, but definitely raise some eyebrows aware, around how the U.S. is, is gaming this out. I, I, I'm not I'm suggesting diplomacy here by by motto, but I mean, let's face it, one of the mottos of, of NATO is an attack on one is attack on all of us. Uh, and and they've tried to live by that, which is one of the reasons Canada has been involved in some of these other conflicts, because they do live by that credo. Uh, acceptance of Ukraine into NATO would mean that if there's a Russian incursion, there would have to be a military response, and I think that's what they're trying to avoid. Uh, so it's 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 really a, a staring match here between NATO and, and the Russians now, isn't it? Now, mm-hmm. to, to find out just how they're going to respond, it seems as if something's going to happen along the border. Uh, and, and they're just waiting to see, okay, it's kind of like drawing a line in the sand, isn't it? Saying, okay, NATO, what are you going to do about this? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So it is like, it, it is that kind of security dilemma, you know, feel, right? Like is, is everything is, is being escalated. There are more troops on the border. There is more assistance being sent, sent to the Ukraine. And so there is this sort of amassing of resources and presence on either side. And that, you know, as we know, creates um, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of stress and can, you know, it's sort of like who's going to blink first, who's going to make the first move and how long can is this be drawn out? You know, how long can NATO go without giving Russia what it wants and not have Russia respond? Uh, Minister Sejan has already suggested it's not time yet. I think that was the operative word yet uh, to send weaponry over there, although that seems to be in, in the discussion. Sure. Yeah. And I think that's that's one of the things that, that people are kind of looking at the prime minister saying, what is, what is our plan? What are we going to do? Because that's part of it. Right. Like if I mean, it's one thing for us to be sending, um, you know, financial aid and, and trying to build the Ukraine's resilience so that they can get through this. And obviously that's necessary. But, you know, at what point, you know, if at any point is Canada going to take that next step? That's a pivot. I got a few minutes left if I could. I want to talk about what's going on in Ottawa. Uh, as they get back to work there. Conservative MPs from Saskatchewan shot down a bid uh, to uh, kick uh, Denise Batters, Senator Denise Batters, out of the regional parliamentary group this week. Uh, it's something Aaron O'Toole had insisted that they do. He tried to boot her out a little bit earlier, and they kind of dug their heels in and said that's not going to happen. I'm not so sure that they support necessarily what Batters said here, but the reality here is this is a kick in the shins to Aaron O'Toole again. I mean, is he leading this party or not? Because they don't seem to be following. Yeah, that's it. I'm, and you're right. 
I mean, regardless of, of what anybody, you know, whether or not anyone's really on board with, with what batter said or not, this seems to not be about batters. It's about O'Toole. It's about the, that regional caucus sending him a message that, listen, you're not going to decide who's in our caucus. We are. And in some ways, um, the decision of O'Toole to remove Senator Batters from caucus in some ways is, you know, sorry, but it's, it's kind of a weak move, right? Because if you it really want petty, to start... Doesn't it? Sorry? It seems petty. It is. It is petty. And you know what? If you're going to start really get, you know, getting tough on who's in caucus and who's it and who isn't, why isn't he taking any of this, you know, reaction out on any of the MPs who have spoken against him? But no, like he's not doing that. And but of course, the, there's the whole Reform Act thing, which which definitely kind of curtails what kind of response O'Toole can have here because he's, he's got that triggered around him and that limits what he can do and, and, you know, what, what he can do in terms of the caucus that's in the house of commons, but still he clearly has a crisis on his hands. There are definitely people not, you know, inside the house and outside the house who do not agree with his leadership. And he's obviously not been able to sort of smooth any of this out since the election. And I think um, the introduction of this report, that's kind of the the postmortem on what happened in the election is probably not going to smooth anything out any further, to be honest. And it'll be interesting to see uh, whether any of that is revealed publicly, what the MPs do, you know, whether they're ex- they are mobilized to put somebody else in O'Toole's place. Cause I think that's ultimately the thing. If you don't want to leap the, if you don't like the leader, that's fine. But if you don't have someone to come in and do a better job, then there's not much point in, in kicking up a fuss over it. There has to be another strategy. Well, and, and I mean, Batter's, you know, comments, I mean, her, her crime, as it were, was criticizing O'Toole. Uh, that, that's essentially what she was doing. She didn't break any laws or any, any you know, mores of the party or anything. She just criticized after the election. Uh, and she's speaking for more than herself there. I mean, there's a lot of people in the caucus right now that are, are just not crazy about Aaron O'Toole as a leader. As a matter of fact, I'm sure you've heard some of the, the grumblings there. Nobody seems to want to attribute their comments on the record, but uh, several MPs are now saying that this this review of leadership that uh, O'Toole says, yeah, bring it on. Uh, he's One of them actually said it's already written. They're just going to blame the pandemic. Uh, and say, you know, we couldn't get out there, couldn't do this, and that's what cost us the election. And he said, and he said that's not what it was at all. I mean, they want to focus on O'Toole, and O'Toole's not letting them do that. But they they are relentless here. Oh, 100%, yeah. And I mean, even, you know, the MPs that, like, Shannon Stubbs, for instance, has has made, you know, very public comments around, I lost a good chunk of votes. I still won. But a lot of people, you know, are kind of like, I can't vote for you because of what's going on in the Conservative Party, because they don't support Aaron O'Toole. And I mean... That at a certain point, like the party has to deal with that. But yes, you're absolutely right. Like there's there's this sort of backdrop of, oh, the pandemic and we couldn't do what we would normally do. But listen, like Aaron O'Toole had all kinds of time to prepare for this. And he made decisions about how he was going to run his campaign and what he was going to focus on. And I mean, maybe if they those decisions had worked out better and the party had performed better, maybe even people who were kind of suspect about all that would have gotten behind him and said, OK, you know, fine, you won. But that's not what happened. And so there's more of a, okay, you know, what are we going to do now? How are we moving forward? And to be honest, it doesn't really seem um, that O'Toole, even aside from those things, it, it, it hasn't seemed that he's been able to kind of situate the party in a clear uh, position going forward that would communicate clearly what the party stands for. Like the conservatives are getting really pulled down and lost into some of this um, rhetoric around the pandemic and vaccines and, I don't think that this is this is helping O'Toole claim any kind of leadership of the party at all. 
how deep are these fissures that are created? And, and let's, you know, I'm, I'm not going into this, you know, naively. Uh, there's going to be discontent within all political parties. I mean, you know, not everybody's going to agree, love the leader or some of the policies. That, that happens all the time. But they usually do most of it behind closed doors. And But this this is very out there. I mean, they're doing this on the front line of the parliament buildings uh, for everybody to see. Uh, but, you know, when this happened before, of course, we had, you know, the the... The Reform Party that, you know, was an offshoot of this. Uh, the People's Party, uh, I guess you could say, is part of this process. Uh, there's some other parties, the Maverick Party and others, uh, small at this stage, uh, that could be a threat to, to, to conservatives here. And not necessarily to overtake them, but, uh, you know, to whittle away at some of that vote count that they were counting on. Oh, exactly. Like, in some ways, um, you could look at, a cons- at the conservative movement right now and say, maybe this is not you know, a time where all of those factions on the right side can come together in, in a party that works and in a party that's going to have a real shot at winning. Like, I mean, the circumstances were different when Stephen Harper and Peter McKay made the decision to merge the parties. And there was, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it. Obviously, there were more people involved in that decision. Sure. But when the party merged, it was at a specific period of time in the evolution of the party system where the liberals were particularly weak when Harper's leadership seemed to make sense to enough people. And he was able to say, listen, um, if we can keep it together here, we'll win. So don't focus on the things that divide us, focus on the things that unite us. And it worked, it worked for three elections, but we're not in the same context anymore. It's not the same time in history. And I don't know necessarily like this is, you know, they run the risk of a kind of revolving door of leaders and nobody wants that. But is there somebody who can take all of the various factions of the party and put them together? Because for some people, you know, a lot of people, and sure, you're in politics because you want to win. You you want to run for the party that you think is going to have the best shot at winning because you want to be an MP. You want to be a cabinet minister. That's fine. But not everybody is necessarily interested in winning before everything else. Some people in the conservative movement and in all in all parties would rather stick to what they want and the values that they have even if those values and promises and, and, and principles are not going to win an election this time. So I think there's a key, you know, divide in the party about that as well, whether you want to move to the center or you want to move in any direction because you think that's going to grab more votes or you'd prefer to be, you know, stick to the principles that, that really, you know, guide you and that mean, you know, something about conservatism to you. And by the way, I know we're just about out of time, but I mean, in, in fairness, uh, this this same debate's going on on the other side of the aisle, too. I mean, this, uh, the Hill Times is reporting uh, this weekend that a lot of liberal MPs, backbenchers, are asking you know, the prime minister, are you going to be the leader going into the next election or not? Because if not, get off the boat right now so we can mm-hmm. get ourselves together and get our act together. Uh, and he's been noncommittal about that. You know, but so, so it's it's ongoing. It's going to. Uh, I guess that's part of politics in Ottawa, but it's fascinating to watch and see the impact it's going to have. Always a pleasure, Doctor, to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this. Uh, as I say, these other situations are very fluid, and I, hopefully we can hook up again soon and talk about the new developments. That would be great. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, Director of Social and uh, Public Administration, of course, with the Housie University out in the East Coast. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about, uh, well, we're talking about the economy all through the show today. This is a major part and a major problem with the economy right now. As you heard uh, on the news over the last couple of days, there is a convoy of Canadian truckers headed to Ottawa eventually to protest the federal vaccine mandate. Global's David Bowles reports that they brought the message to Alberta this weekend. It is now time to end 
the COVID restrictions 100%. We don't want them telling us what to do. This was the sentiment expressed by many involved in the so-called Freedom Convoy Sunday. The cavalcade of trucks left B.C. in the morning, passed through Edmonton later that day before going to Calgary that night. The convoy is bound for Ottawa, where it hopes to push the federal government to do away with the measure requiring Canadian truckers to be vaccinated in order to avoid a 14-day quarantine. However, University of Alberta law professor Timothy Caulfield says this convoy frustrates him partly because the truckers had to know this was coming. All of those problems associated with losing jobs and the supply chain that are associated with this would go away if they got vaccinated. David Bowles, Global News. So uh, let's talk about convoys. Let's talk about the whole idea of convoys, whether or not they're effective, and particularly this one, because uh, there are a lot of questions being raised and not a whole lot of answers right now, including who's behind this. Uh, there's a, a piece that uh, was published a couple of days ago that I think should should set some light onto this. It's called The Murky Matter of Protests and the Donations that Drive Them. Uh, the author of the uh, the piece is James Menzies. Uh, James is the editor of today's Trucking and truckingnews.ca and joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. James, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. It's trucknews.com. Just a small correction there. but um, Oh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Let's, let's talk about the piece itself. Uh, every time you uh, write something about something that's controversial, you're going to get feedback, uh, either good or bad, on this. Uh, you, uh, okay. Reputation, James, is, is not to straddle the fence on situations like this. You, you talk quite candidly about who's behind this and, and who may be funding this sort of thing. What kind of reaction did you get to the piece, first of all? Well, the, the reaction was uh, 200 hate mails and counting, um, but uh, there were some encouraging responses, too, that were a little more uh, balanced. I think that um, the reason this is sort of um, hitting people the wrong way is that there's a lot of frustration and anger towards our government right now, but I think that some of that, sure, is coming from the trucking industry, but I really think that people need to look at this convoy that's coming from out west as as not a trucking initiative. To me, it's... Um, it's more of an anti-vax, anti-mandate, anti-government initiative that's very political in nature. And, um, you know, they've been able to tap into some frustrations that do exist among a population of the trucking industry. And, and trucks are big and loud and get a lot of attention and can be very disruptive. So um, I don't really think of it as a trucking initiative as much as I do a, a political movement. And, um, yes, trucking, unfortunately, has, a, has been attached to it. Well, and to underscore that, I guess just about every legitimate agency, a trucking association, et cetera, have, have said that, look, we're not on side with this. Uh, it's just, it's not going to work and it's not the way to be to be dealing with a situation like this. Uh, and, and there's a history to this, isn't there? As you mentioned in the piece, I mean, you know, if the, whether these, you know, blockades or protests or trucking protests or whatever the case might be, uh, I'm hard pressed to think of an example where it actually brought a government, for instance, to its knees to say, you're right, we'll change. It, it rarely happens. All yeah. it does is really anger people on the roads, first of all, and, and anger people in each city in which they come because they're a huge disruption. And, and that's the thing. I mean, I've, I also can't think of a single convoy that has actually achieved its purpose. Um, and I don't see that happening here, even if they were hypothetically to get the Trudeau government to reverse its stance on the vaccine requirement at the border. Well, that's great. But the United States a week later came out with its own. And that has been... You know, they've been steadfast about that since October, so it's no surprise. So really, what's the matter what you have to go through to get back into Canada if you can't get into the States in the first place if you're unvaccinated? Well, yeah. Uh, so are they directing their anger there, too? I mean, it's uh, if, if, you're, if you're part of this protest and you see what's happened, and as you mentioned, subsequently, the U.S. adopted their own policy, uh, which is very similar to this. Uh, you got to figure, hey, there's a trend developing here, and, and maybe we're on the wrong side of this issue, but it doesn't seem to be their attitude, though. 
No, and and they're they're persistent and they're they're fairly stubborn. But the um, the other thing to keep in mind is that, and and you know, speaking on behalf of someone that covers the trucking industry quite closely, the vast majority of, of truckers are vaccinated, and the vast majority have no problem with being vaccinated, and they encourage it. Um, you know, I think that the rep, the vaccination rates among the trucking industry and trucking drivers are slightly lower than that of the general public, but not a lot. And there are still a lot of drivers that are able to cross the border and get goods to and from the United States. And um, that's important to remember. The ones that are behind this, that are involved in this convoy, a lot of them are unvaccinated. But I, again, I think that most of the people behind it, including the fundraiser behind it, really don't have much to do with trucking at all. There was something like 40,000 donors to this campaign that's raised now close to three and a half million dollars. And I can tell you that those 40,000 people are not all from the trucking industry. Well, let's talk about that. The numbers I've seen, by the way, you're right. I mean, Canadian truckers, I, it's, it is slightly below the national average, but I think it's in the high 80s. Uh, the number of Canadian truckers that are, are fully vaccinated. I think the number of American drivers is, is less. I think it's about 65, 66%. So they've still yes. got some some a way to go in situations like that, which begs the question then who's involved in this 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 protest itself? And and you talked in the piece about one individual in particular who, uh, well, has a history of association with radical groups, uh, including the Yellow Vest movement. And uh, as you mentioned, maybe even some of these anti-vaxxers that hounded certain politicians during the last federal campaign. Yeah, well, she's certainly involved with the Maverick Party, which is a federal separatist party based in Alberta. And, um, you know, that's out there for all to see on LinkedIn and on the Maverick Party website. And um, before that, it was it was Wexit, Wexit, Alberta, um, these separatist parties that really wanted to see Alberta separate from the rest of Canada, which makes me wonder, you know, how safe it is to have multi-million dollars in the hands of someone raised through a GoFundMe that really wants to separate from, from Canada and break up the country while claiming that this convoy is actually all about unity and bringing the country together. Just it, it raised my eyebrows, that's for sure. And now that there's been some attention given to how much money has been raised and who it's being raised by, GoFundMe has um, has come out and they told some some local media and they issued a statement saying that they're going to freeze those funds until they've received a detailed plan as how, how those funds will be dispersed. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens with that, especially since a lot of these truck drivers that are in the convoy, even from Western Canada, were promised that their fuel costs would be reimbursed through these, this GoFundMe initiative. So if they can't access that money, they can't reimburse those truckers. We'll, we'll see if it um, gains strength as it travels east or if it fizzles out. But to your point about the GoFundMe campaign, I mean, as you mentioned in the piece, though, James, they're not required to, to talk about where the money's going. It, it goes, I guess, to the individuals uh, that are, are named in the, in the GoFundMe campaign. But once what they do with it after that, uh, it's, it, well, it, it's a pretty gray area, isn't it? It is a gray area. And, and of late, GoFundMe has taken some steps to not allow, um, not allow some sorts of political or anti-vax type um, campaigns to collect, um, to collect money through GoFundMe. So the question is, how do they deem this? Do they deem it as a trucker convoy or do they deem it as more of a political movement and anti-vax movement? And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what comes of that. In the meantime, we're told that um, that the organizers are now accepting e-transfers direct to an account that they control. Who, how would you characterize what's going on here? I mean, uh, we've seen some of the news clips over the weekend on the on the news, the national news, on all the networks, frankly. Uh, and, you know, you've got a couple of people there that identify themselves as truckers. And, you know, you can't tell us what to do. It's the same sort of rhetoric we've heard from anti-vaxxers on both sides of the border for, for quite some time right now. Uh, it seemed oblivious to the fact that nobody's saying you must get vaccinated. They're simply saying if you want to do that job, you have to be vaccinated. And if you don't, well, there are consequences to it. And that's 
kind of what, what our lifestyle is like in North America, isn't it? There are rules and regulations. And if you don't follow the rules and regulations, there are consequences. Yeah, and it's a free market. And, you know, the market's going to dictate um, rates and the rates are going to probably favor those who are vaccinated and can cross the border. Um, you know, just basic economics. If there are few truck, fewer truckers able to cross the border because they don't get the vax, then rates will have to go up. And that means that, um, you know, it'll be a good time to be a vaccinated cross-border trucker. You're, you're going to be able to choose from the loads available. Um, you asked about my my overall opinion on it. I think it's a little unsettling. It's, it's disappointing. It's disheartening because uh, we saw some protests just this past weekend in Windsor and Sarnia, and they were peaceful, um, but they still blocked traffic. They still created frustration. Um, the roads were quite bad in Windsor. You know, there's safety issues, especially if you get frustrated motorists backed up behind these, these trucks. Um, in Windsor, they tried to keep one of the three lanes open for cross-border truckers and other motorists, which is great. But still, you end up getting these these truckers that are 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 basically trying to put food on on their family's plates and and do their job and make their deliveries and make them on time. They're um, they're heavily restricted federally by hours of service regulations. So if they get caught up in a convoy for a couple hours, they might not get home that night. They might have to park it a couple hours from home for a night. It's just. It's just unfortunate. There's got to be better ways to to have your voice heard. Well, and not just to have it heard, but to, to be an effective voice. Because like you say, I don't recall uh, public sentiment switching on an issue like that simply because of protests. Whether it's uh, sometimes Eastern Ontario farmers a few years ago with a tractor protest down the 401 to Toronto to Queen's Park. Uh, all that did was get a whole bunch of angry you know, commuters on the 401 uh, uh, against them, basically saying, you just screwed up my day. Um, and similarly... When there's a protest like this, James, what's what impact is this having on the industry? I mean, if they're clogging up the highway with a, a quote-unquote protest, how is commerce affected by this? Well, certainly commerce is going to be affected. I mean, we've got a, we don't have the best infrastructure in the world here in Canada. We've got a, a Trans-Canada Highway that mostly through the prairies is two lanes. If two lanes are being blocked by a slow-moving convoy, then you've got a lot of deliveries that aren't going to be made on time. And we've already seen the supply chain issues that are happening, not just because of the lack of truck drivers, but because of absenteeism and the workforce in general. And that's only going to get worse, unfortunately, because, and the other thing is, I see these videos of of these long, long lines of, of trucks crossing the prairies and, and headed to Ottawa. But then I, I see within them, I, I see trucks with trailers that belong to big fleets that want to participate in something like that. And I know that they're just getting caught up in it, you know, and it looks great for those that are organizing the convoy to say, look, the truck, the traffic's backed up for miles. Look at all these truckers. But I would venture to guess that a lot of them aren't actively involved in the protests. They just had the misfortune of coming upon this slow moving convoy, which is going to make them late to get home to their families, late to get their load delivered to the grocery store. Yeah, I mean, you know, if it's only one highway from point A to point B, uh, you're 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 part of it, whether you like it or not. I guess you're part of the convoy, but uh, you may only be going as far as your destination where you're going to drop off your load anyway. So it'll be interesting to see. But more to the point, I, I'm fascinated by what these guys are doing. And juxtapose that with what the industry is doing, which is basically saying, look, it, uh, we understand why you're doing this and we agree with this. Just about everybody we've talked to in the industry says this is this is a good policy. you got to give us time. That's all they're asking for. They're not saying give us a, a, a free pass on this. They're simply saying do for us what you did for healthcare workers, uh, for educators, for people in other fields where you say mandatory vaccinations coming in. There's going to be a grace period now for you guys to comply. Um, that. Yeah would be a compromise, I think, that would work, something the government should should be looking at right now. But to have that kind of a discussion, uh, it's well, I guess what's going on across the country right now in whatever shape or form or however strong it's going to be, James, is a distraction. Instead of having discussion and negotiation, you've got confrontation. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think prior to the mandate going into effect on January 15th, that was the hope. That was what the industry is lobbying for. Give us more time. This isn't the time to do it. And um, I think that the mood has changed since then to one of acceptance by the industry, because if that were to happen, it would have had to happen by now. Um, we, no one's expecting a reversal, either in Canada or the United States. And even if we did get one in Canada because of a, an action like this, as I said before, it's not going to happen in the United States. So it's irrelevant what you have to do upon return to Canada when you can't get into the States in the first place. So I, I think now that the key is um, we have to deal with it. We have to accept it. We have to realize that it is what it is. And if you don't want to be vaccinated for now, you have the option of, of trucking domestically within Canada. If you want to do cross-border freight, well, you have to be vaccinated. That's the only option. How's the industry handling this? I mean, as you mentioned, there have been supply chain issues all through this pandemic. Uh, this is this is just another uh, you know barrier that's been put up in situations like this. Uh, but the industry has been crippled right now, and and I I guess they figure this is a way to bring the industry and the government to its knees. But when the the people that are signing the paychecks and the people that are are sending these trucks out uh, you know to pick up loads and to drop them off, when they're saying we're going to be compliant with this. It, it really kind of takes the air out of the balloon of the protesters, doesn't it? It does. And we've seen the, the industry become very creative in how it's dealing with this. Fuel Transport is a, a fleet based out of Montreal that's paying its drivers $10,000 per driver to get fully vaccinated. Now, I mean, that's being proactive about it. And you think that drivers that are anti-vax are, are going to turn up their nose at a $10,000 bonus? Absolutely not. They have about 100 drivers. That's a million dollars that they're paying their drivers to get vaccinated that they'll pay over the course of a year. Other fleets are offering bonuses. They're offering pay increases to those drivers that are vaccinated because they know that those are the drivers that are going to keep them functioning well as a business. Well, it's uh, it's going to be fascinating to see what kind of reaction they get. And as you say, just what's going to happen is they uh, continue with their trek across the country. Uh, fascinating piece. Uh, and I think it's a, a must read for people that are trying to get a handle on what's going on. Uh, with this protest and what's going on with the trucking industry as well. James, great to have you on the program today. Thanks so much for this. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate the chat. James Menzies, uh, of course, editor of today's Trucking and Trucking News. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.